Hello, I'm James Foey. Joining me is Claire White. Hello. As well as... Eli McElveen. And this is Dragons, Sexy Robots, and Adventures, a Nerd Manual. We are here to discuss new and old nerd creations, how they were made, and explore the roots of the characters and stories. Today, we are talking about... Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Yes, and I just want to say too, Eli, could you introduce yourself and, and mention the wonderful things that you're a part of that led to you being here today? Oh, sure. Um, I'm Eli McElveen. I'm with Fable and Folly Productions. We do Alba Salix, Royal Physician, which is a fantasy, it's a fairy tale sitcom podcast set at a fairytale hospital and uh, the newest show we do is Civilized, which is a, a dark sci-fi comedy that's completely improvised. Yes. And you perform in them? Do you write in them? I am, uh, I created Alba Salix and am the, the main writer on it and I do all the production work on all our shows. Yes. And he's one of a few people who thought that a good topic for us to cover would be the BBC radio play of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Oh, yes. <laughs> Which And so we paired it with War of the Worlds, and we're finally here. Yeah. So for those who don't know, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is written by Douglas Adams. It follows Arthur Dent, an Englishman who somehow survives the destruction of Earth by a race of aliens called the Vogons, to make way for an intergalactic highway. His savior is Ford Prefect, an alien traveling to research the guidebook, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Ford and Arthur travel through space, running into a depressed, paranoid robot, an infinite improbability drive, and also a supercomputer able to answer the ultimate question of life, the universe, and everything. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy was first a radio play, which was released on the BBC, and that is what we will be talking about. It was released on the BBC in 1978, and was also eventually released into many, many iterations, including a novel, a TV show, and a movie. James and I will be kind of doing a split history segment on The Hitchhiker's Guide and where it came from. And Eli is actually going to talk to us about the production of Hitchhikers and also mm -hmm. how that's influenced him. Um, so I guess I'll uh, take it away. When researching Hitchhiker's Guide and looking for what influenced Adams, I wasn't finding much. In fact, uh, what kept coming up was that Hitchhiker's is considered by many to be the first of its kind, a truly original work of science fiction. I guess that's part of why it's so loved and memorable. Uh, more specifically, it is considered one of the first pieces of satirical science fiction, which can definitely be argued, and I'll touch on this at the end of my segment. Which will transition very nicely into <laughs> mine. <laughs> uh, but I thought I would take a look at satire, since we've never covered a piece that's been as defined by satire as Hitchhikers has. Now, I don't know about you gentlemen, and Eli, as a writer, you might be more versed in this than us, but um, satire is one of those things that I always feel like I know it when I see it. Uh, but when I tried to fumble out a definition before really looking into it, I found I couldn't actually describe it. Um, which I found out is because the meaning of satire is pretty vague, and as a genre, it's incredibly broad. So this is my, you know, attempt to kind of squeeze it into five minutes. <laughs> satire is when irony, exaggeration, or ridicule is used to expose vices or stupidity, or both. A lot of times it uses humor to allow the writer or performer or artist to achieve their goals. 
These goals tend to be social criticism and the overall goal of hopefully, if the satire is very good, to change people's ideas about the status quo and bring about overarching changes in the system they're usually living in, um, which the writer, that's the system that the writer is usually disparaging in the piece. I say writer because it's normally, I feel like, a writer's medium, um, but I know that there's many forms of it as well. Um in satire, the writer usually has fictional characters stand in for real, peop- real people, so to better shine a light on the hypocrisy they're exposing. This makes the work less personal and hopefully more palatable to the readers and viewers, instead of feeling like a medical- metaphorical finger is being directly pointed at them. Reading satire can be a way to look at public discourse, and when looking back in history, studying satire from different time periods can be a way historians gain insights into the psyche of the people and what they thought of those in power. To that point, satire has been around for thousands of years. There are examples of it found in ancient Greek, ancient Roman, and medieval Islamic writings, just to name a few. Uh, The Greek dramatist Aristophanes, who is sometimes referred to as the father of comedy, use many types of humor, and his plays are pretty much understood to be the first surviving examples of satire. Now, I'm sure it was around before then, but we still have access to these. Mockery is so popular among humans that (laughs) (laughs) you have to think we were up to it. I know, we were always doing it. Um, Aristophanes was a social conservative and would go after notable public figures like Socrates and Euripides, whose ideas he thought undermined traditional values. In fact, as far as influencing the public with satire, Socrates saw Aristophanes' play Clouds as a factor in his trial and eventual execution. Though it is always noted that historians don't think this is what Aristophanes was aiming to achieve with this play. (laughs) Um, He also had it out for the public uh, uh, politician Cleon and went after him in many of his plays. Now, uh, just so we can look at it, Um, as a genre, satire tends to be grouped into three types. Um, Though, of course, with all genres and subgenres, these often get mixed nowadays. There is Horatian, named after the Roman satirist Horace. Uh, Horatian satire is meant to entertain with humor. It avoids negativity and placing blame on others. Um, This is the most gentle form of satire. The aim is to be clever and knowing while exposing the peculiarities of human behavior. It's not necessarily trying to make change in the world, just to amuse and maybe have the reader laugh themselves as well as society. Uh, Some examples of this would be our uh, topic, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, many Monty Python works, um, movies like What We Do in the Shadows, and also I would say Alba Salix would fall into this category of satire. I think that's pretty fair. Yeah. Um, And all of these pieces are taking jabs at society and groups of people. But for the most part, it's lighthearted and not trying to really change the system. Uh, There's Juvenalian, uh, named after the ancient Roman satirist Juvenal. Attacks individuals, governments, and exposes hypocrisy. It's usually fueled with a moral indignation and a strong point to make. Political satire almost always falls under this category. Um, Because the goal is to make change, this uh, particular brand of satire is not always funny. Um, Some examples would be Animal Farm by George Orwell, The Daily Show, The Colbert Report. (laughs) I think they want to be funny. No, they are funny. But But Animal Farm isn't always funny. No, Animal Farm's not funny at all. But but the (laughs) – yeah, but when you're you're trying to make that kind of hard point, it does – 
it, the more open you are about trying to make a point with your satire, mm -hmm. it does, I think, get harder to be funny. Yeah. I think when it's done really well. Oh, yeah. It's funny. It, it still can be. I but mean, the more Animal Farm is done is. very well. But yeah. It's not funny. <laughs> then there's a Menippean named after the ancient Greek philosopher. Uh, I assume this is Menippus. <laughs> I found Menippean, not Menippus online. Uh, it's for, uh, for what's it called? Pronunciations. It tends to pick out one particular character, flaw, or personality trait. This is when you find artists going after single-minded people. And it sounds a lot like juvenalian, but it's not as heavy-handed. Uh, the target is more specific, and they're usually not trying to make an overarching change. Some examples are, um, I don't know if you've watched this, Eli, but Dave Chappelle's Blind Klansman uh, skit is a good example of this. And I think the satir... Let Eli answer. Have oh. you seen the Blind oh, I, Klansman? I haven't. Oh, oh really? Haven't. Okay. No. Well, you're in for a treat. Um, it's a... Uh, a blind KKK member played by Chappelle. Yes, it's a black blind Ku uh, Klux gotcha. Klan member. I see what this is going. <laughs> yes, and he's always wearing his hoods in the in his mask in the meetings. You see. <laughs> so <laughs> anyway, um, and another example of this type of uh, uh, what's it called? satirical writing is The Onion, I think, normally goes in this direction, where they're uh, the satirical newspaper, The Onion, where they're mm -hmm. kind of going after one specific thing in their articles, like uh, Kim Jong-un is sexiest man of the year. Um, one of my favorite headlines. So to kind of wrap this all up, it's funny to me that Hitchhikers is considered the first satirical piece of science fiction, because I think by nature, science fiction is satire. A lot of times it's writers replacing Earth or the people of today with another world so they can attack or examine the systems in place in a much more lighthearted, palatable, roundabout way. However, I do think Hitchhiker's Guide could be one of the first or the first popular piece of humorous satirical science fiction. And because of that, it has made a lasting impact on the genre and, and, and continues to influence many works uh, today. Yeah. Brief, just brief hot take, and we'll <laughs> we'll get more to this. It is by no means the first piece of science uh, fiction satire, but I think what it is, you know, reading about it and its popularity versus other works that are like it, it's just so much more popular and it's so mainstream. Like a, as beloved as it is as a, a work of nerd culture and mm -hmm. a thing that identifies nerds among themselves that, oh, we share this thing, this is a part of our community and how we identify each other, mm -hmm. right? Um, it appealed to people who didn't like science fiction. Yeah. You know, well, there's it was a lot written of, yeah. by someone who didn't really yeah, read science fiction. Exactly, exactly. And I think that's a that's a big thing in its success is, is its wide appeal and how it managed to get in the ears of people who didn't listen to uh, other genre pieces so wouldn't be aware of of the others. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which, which gets into my uh, next bit... Um, I'll be talking about the prior works that influenced Douglas Adams, uh, both consciously and perhaps unconsciously, dot, dot, dot. Um, <laughs> because there's some things that he said he never read that the more I read about them, it's, it's, I'm undecided. <laughs> have you, have you ever heard of, um, Eli, have you ever heard of, let's see his name, Robert Sheckley? Yes, I was just going <laughs> to uh, mention him because he's sort of the, the most obvious parallel. Yeah. And it's funny because like when I was first reading about some parallels, I and we'll, you know, we'll get to this, but like he's, he's my third point of the things I'll talk about. But 
at first I was like, oh yeah, that's just how like you hear some music on the radio and then later you copy the melody, but you don't know that you did it. You didn't mean mm-hmm. to, you know, it's just in the ether. It's just out there, you know? And then yeah. <laughs> the more I read, I was like, I don't know, man. Um, but anyway, uh, let's start off. The, the easiest segue from Claire's segment about satire into the influences of Douglas Adams is Monty Python, which mm-hmm. Douglas Adams famously said, he loved Monty Python so much that when he went to college, he was just trying to train to be John Cleese. <laughs> the job he wanted out of school was to be John Cleese. And he said it took him a while to realize that job is taken. You have to practice yeah. your walks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so a- anyway, starting with Monty Python, uh, I'm sure most of our listeners know what that group is. But just so you know. Uh, they were the performers behind Monty Python's Flying Circus. They're a bunch of boys from Oxford and Cambridge who had been in performing groups in these very elite institutions, which positioned them very well for the kind of satire of the elites that they wanted to do. Uh, the original six members included one American, uh, Terry Gilliam, but also included another five Brits, John Cleese, Graham Chapman, Michael Palin, Eric Idle, and Terry Jones. Uh, the Monty Python's Flying Circus ran on the BBC from 1969 to 1974. And it itself, um, as wild and different as it was considered to be, was inspired by The Goon Show, which I had never heard of until looking Hooray. at Mo- Monty yes. Python's history. Oh, yes, The Goon Show. Uh, loved The Goon Show as a kid. Yeah. See, that's how. Grew up on that stuff. See, that's how cool and up on radio history you are. <laughs> I had never heard of it, and I love Peter Sellers, but I didn't know that he had a radio show that ran for nine years mm-hmm. that was doing a more surreal kind of comedy yeah. before that was more widely popular. But Monty yeah. Python, I think, is the thing that really is credited with blowing up that kind of uh, absurdist comedy in a mainstream way. Um, for sure, yeah. Uh, so, um, as I said, uh, so for types of humor, I mean, it is satire. Like, a lot of their targets <laughs> include... Things like the empire and religion and the bureaucracy um, and, uh, you know, a British manner of doing things. A lot of times there's characters, especially by John Cleese, who are playing uh, people, British people under duress who (laughs) must maintain British politeness at all costs, even though there is also a very British rage (laughs) that is simmering underneath it the whole time, um, which Cleese, you know, in particular was really great at. It's important to note, I think this is going to tie into Hitchhikers pretty well, that um, Monty Python's Flying Circus didn't want to even have a single genre that you could call them. Uh, They attempted to defy (laughs) definition and segued from sketch to sketch more about what they thought would be funny in what's been described as a stream of consciousness style than there was any overarching narrative to it. Even the Mm -hmm. Goon Show had more of a... A through line than yeah Monty it was Python. always an adventure of, uh, that went from beginning to end and Monty Python would just end a sketch randomly never start a sketch <laughs> yeah I think there's there's an episode where they don't either they don't play the the show's opening or it plays like halfway through like yeah, even they, that they, the, they blew up the format con- continuously yes um so anyway uh <laughs> Going so the impact of Monty Python for each of these things I want to talk about their the you know a bit of their impact beyond that um, for Monty Python it's hard to even list the number of of uh, comedic enterprises that were influenced by them but just one 
SNL, Lauren Michaels openly talks about how influential Monty Python, My, Monty Python was yeah. to forming Saturday Night Live. Um, and in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, uh, their treatment of um, Arthur or, you know, Adam's <laughs> uh, stiff upper lip British mm -hmm. character of Arthur like that is very much the kind of person that would find themselves in a bad situation in a Monty Python sketch. Yeah. Uh, you're going from uh, one group of outrageous caricatures to another in a flow that I think is more, the the humor of it is more important than the narrative of it, um, which is another thing that, that that's similar there. Uh, and, you know, the whole original, the, the whole plot hinges on an outrageous and cruel bureaucracy <laughs> kicking yeah. off the whole thing, which it's is probably a, worth noticing, noting that um, Douglas Adams was one of, I think, maybe two people who weren't Pythons to write for Monty Python. He, he wrote a sketch for he he wrote a sketch in the show. Yes, wasn't it and, the very last episode? A, uh, I don't know when it was, but yeah, it's it's uh, basically a, sh uh, a sketch about not being able to get medical insurance while while dying on the floor. Yes, and not being able to fit. There are historical questions on the forms that you have to be able to answer correctly. Yeah. And the doctor is sympathizing with you and how mad bad you need help. But like, I mean, really, you ought to know the answers to these questions, though, too. <laughs> Yeah, it's dark. Um, all right. So now that I am out of time, I'm going to do my third point, <laughs> which is to talk about uh, Robert Sheckley. So uh, Robert Sheckley uh, lived from 1928 to 2005 and is another man that, like Woodhouse, was incredibly prolific. He was writing from the 1950s onward. He wrote more than four hundred short stories and and 15 novels uh and once again this is somebody with a love of satire as claire was talking about the definition of satire of dealing with people's uh vices he, this is the one who um douglas adams said he wasn't influenced by yes but wink wink maybe he was uh, i don't i don't want to call him a i don't liar. know how you could how you could read a sheckley story and forget it <laughs> Yeah, I think I think he must have talked to people who had read Sheckley's stories in his life and not realized that that's where some of their ideas came from. Maybe I, I'm sorry, we'll get to it because I don't want to call him a liar because I think the way he talked about it sounds like when he did read Sheckley, he was a little embarrassed to see the similarities. Like he, <laughs> yeah. Neil Gaiman paraphrased him as saying it was disturbing to him because Neil Gaiman. <laughs> wrote The Guide, what was it called? Uh, Don't Panic, The Guide, <laughs> yeah. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. When Neil Gaiman wrote that in the 80s and he was talking to a Douglas Adams, Adams said that he only read Sheckley after so many critics compared him to him. <laughs> and then he read it and found the, the um, parallels somewhat mm -hmm. disturbing. Uh, he was also asked, uh, <laughs> I'll give you two quotes from both Sheckley and... Um, Douglas Adams about the other one. When Adams was asked what the difference between him and Sheckley's work was, Adams said, Sheckley's is better. And Aww. when Sheckley was asked about the difference between their works, Sheckley said, Adams made more money than I ever did off his. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it didn't, in the quote, it didn't sound as mean. He's like, well, he made more of his book. <laughs> you know, he made more <laughs> off his book. Um, so just quick uh, like I said, it, you know, it's human laziness, human incompetence, once again, dealing with the bureaucracy, once again, dealing with the problems of religion uh, and in a science fiction uh, setting. His short stories um, could be uh, 
were concise, obviously they're short stories, they would have a point, would have a through line and could be very profound. They weren't just comic. His novels tended to be sprawling things that seemed like short stories spun together by convenience, you know, leaping from one setting to another. Uh, Mm -hmm. And once again, as with several of the people that we've talked about, his intelligence and his wit, his humor are more important than the plot or even adherence to a single genre. He has stories that go from science fiction to fantasy to and back again. Um, So talking about the, the more direct comparisons to Hitchhiker, some of his big works. He wrote a short story in 1953 that was published in science fiction stories called Ask a Foolish Question. Have you ever heard of this, Eli? I haven't heard that one, no. Uh, Ask a Foolish Question in, is about a machine called the Answerer that is created by uh, an elite group, uh, an, an elite humanoid race that knows all things, um, but maybe isn't happy with what they know of all things. No one ever <laughs> asks them how they feel about it, and they never say. <laughs> but they uh, they decide they're leaving. They're going somewhere the lesser races can't follow, but they want to leave behind knowledge for them in case they want it. And so they build this machine that can answer any question. Hmm. And they sit it on this planet. And in the course of the story, um, you have multiple races arrive, including some humans, and they're all attempting to ask it questions. But the problem is um, it can't answer them because their questions are so imperfect that it's not possible (laughs) to give the answer. And it grows frustrated and it wants to help them. That's the purpose of it. But it can't teach them enough to get them to ask a question that that, um, it can give a satisfactory answer to. And at one point it's compared to someone saying, well, like if if a Bushman were to ask us, these scientists who are talking to the answerer say to each other, if a Bushman were to ask us why he can't shoot his arrow into the sun, the number of things that we would have to explain to them you know, would would not be a a satisfactory answer. It sounds very familiar. It sounds extremely familiar. And that, I was like, oh, that idea could have bounced around. Other people could have had it and it could have come back to him and he not realized he was influenced by it. But he also wrote a book, um, Sheckley did, called Dimension of Miracles in 1968, Mm -hmm. in which a human being finds out that he's won the galactic lottery. Uh, He shouldn't have been entered in the Galactic Lottery. No one even knows how he did. But they decide to let him keep the prize. And this galactic organization pulls him off of Earth, teleports him to them, where they give him the prize. The problem is now they don't know how to get him back to Earth. And it's a whole bureaucratic process to try to figure out how to do it. And this bureaucrat from Earth finds out that the galactic bureaucracy is even worse than his. And now he's been stranded by them. And so he has to find his way home with a variety of different aliens. You might even call yep. it hitchhiking. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and they keep trying to land him on Earth at the right time and in the right universe. So there's some time travel there, too. Mm-hmm. And he's talking to a variety of creatures, including deities. Um, and there's a fun thing. Like one critic was writing about this story and said that uh, Philip K. Dick gave advice to writers, like, never make God a character in your story. <laughs> But if you're as talented as um, Sheckley, you can get away with it, where he has multiple gods in his story (laughs) and they're having theological discussions and it's comedic, but it's also biting. Um, Mm. Anyway, I don't know, guys, it sounds awful familiar, doesn't it? He also had another story in 1965, another novel called Mind Swap, where uh, a guy wants to see the galaxy, but he doesn't have the money. So there's something like a timeshare service that's set up in the future where you can mind swap with aliens. And they get to see Earth, and you get to see Mars. 
<laughs> and other places like that. Um, but uh, it winds up with him being stranded in a variety of different aliens' bodies and seeing a lot of the galaxy once again. Anyway, those were in the 60s, and then Hitchhikers came out in the 70s, but he never read them, didn't hear about them. Sheckley is considered by some to be the first person to mix science fiction and comedy. Mm. But don't worry, Douglas Adams is going to get the credit and all the money! <laughs> and that's... Uh, that's my segment. I don't I don't fully mean that. I think Douglas Adams is talented and deserved the things he got. I just it was really weird to read about this and be like, "Oh, wow, Adams is considered the original by some? That's crazy." Mm. Um anyway, not to be too down on him. I want to be upbeat. On um on that note. <laughs> <laughs> Eli, uh we I'd love to hear what you have to say about production and how this came to be. Yeah, so I I guess I might talk about uh, how the show came to be then, I guess. Yeah. Um yeah, Douglas Adams had been writing on and off for radio and kind of uh, I think at loose ends throughout part of the 70s he'd pitched to uh Doctor Who actually a, a story called The Cricket Men, I think. It was rejected, but the uh the story editor there um had encouraged him to keep trying. Uh and one of the next things he tried was writing this the pilot for what became the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And he wrote uh, for Doctor Who, didn't he? For... He he went on on the strength of that pilot to uh, write. Uh, I think it was a total of three stories that he wrote or co-wrote, and he was a script editor for um, season seventeen, late in uh, Tom Baker's tenure as a Doctor. So. Uh... Uh, yeah, I've read that uh, he got a lot of credit for like the time that he was there, that it set some of the direction for Doctor Who, too. Yeah, I mean, Doctor Who fans talk to tend to talk not just about uh, the different Doctors who've played the show, but the eras associated with each editor. Um, so early Tom Baker was this very gothic, um, very scary stories that, that borrowed from Frankenstein and Hammer Horror. And by the time Douglas Adams was coming around, it was, it was much lighter in tone. Um, they'd, they'd veered away from that, uh, for various reasons. And it became this very jokey comic, um, styled show, uh, especially in, in, uh, the seasons that Adams worked on. Right. I think that's I haven't watched a lot of Doctor Who, but I feel like that's there's pieces of that that still continue on to today. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it uh, his he, he's definitely written some of the best dialogue for the for the show ever. And uh, I think you could you could say that uh, writers like um, uh, Russell T. Davies and um, Stephen Moffat definitely uh, took a lot of their inspiration from the tone of, of uh, Adams's stories. Like the classic one, I guess, is um, City of Death, um, where th there's a crazy alien plot to steal the Mona Lisa and things like that. <laughs> um, so, yeah, he he uh, put together the pilot for this show and pitched it to the BBC. His, his idea was that he wanted to create uh, a comedy show, but with, with very uh, ambitious like um production like he was very into rock albums of the time like pink floyd and the beatles and things that that had that were using the studio as an instrument unto themselves so uh he wanted to to create a, a science fiction show based on that that idea that uh you know you could use the res the vast resources of the bbc uh which i'll get into um to 
to create this very immersive kind of world. Uh, so yeah, luckily that um, he he got to, to produce this or um, got to write this show, and uh, the radiophonic workshop uh, were called in to do the sound. Uh, they had been set up in the fifties actually to work on shows like the Goon Show. Funnily enough, uh, they were this very strange little unit within the BBC that that just did kind of experimental sound. Like uh, there was a historian Mark Ayres who who said something like, uh, "If you wanted the sound of birds in a meadow, you just went to the the sound effects library and pulled a, a LP off the shelf. If you wanted the the sound of someone having a nervous breakdown, you'd go to the the radiophonic workshop. They did they specialize in these much more abstract kind of um, I guess sound experiments more than anything. And when Doctor Who went on the air in the '60s, they were they became kind of the sound effects department for Doctor Who, and uh, produced the um, the amazing version of the theme. Delia Derbyshire and uh, her assistant Dick Mills uh, put together that. This was before the days of commercial synthesizers, but they created this haunting piece of electronic music that stands up today. So they they were uh, like a group of sound engineers. They were a group within the BBC. Yeah, they, um, they were founded by Desmond Briscoe and Daphne Oram, who were uh, studio managers who were sort of getting into trouble for. They go into the studios after hours and kind of pull together all the equipment and do their their crazy experiments. Drag tape recorders out into the hall so they could plug them in together, and then you know things would be a mess in the morning. So they eventually <laughs> talked their bosses at the BBC somehow into giving them a, a couple of spare rooms at Maidavale Studios, uh, where they they set up what would what would become the the BBC Radiophonic Workshop. One of their their first famous, I guess, <laughs> sounds was uh, from the Goon Show. Peter Sellers had a character called Major Bloodnock, who the running gag was that he always had terrible gastric trouble. And so they did this elaborate, ridiculous sound effect, which spliced together, you know, explosions and drains gurgling and God knows what cows moving. I don't even remember what went into it. Oh my goodness. I would so love to hear this. Yeah. I think it's, about it's how on, If you search for major blood knock on uh, YouTube, I think there's, there's clips of it. I will check it out. I, yeah. I, Peter Sellers, I think of him as being so great with physical comedy. It's crazy to think that his voice was enough to be able to par be part of something like that as a career. Oh too. yeah. Oh yeah, uh, the Goon Show was basically a, it was like a cartoon on the radio. Um, so yeah, they they to get back to to uh, Checker's Guide, uh, they they put together the pilot, and then uh, on the basis of that, they, the BBC commissioned the the remaining five episodes of a to round out a season. Um, so all of a sudden, Douglas Adams had to figure out, okay, what happens after they're thrown off a spaceship? How on earth are they saved? And came up with the. Uh, famous improbability drive, um, which is a spaceship powered by the sheer power of improbability, <laughs> which is a wonderful kind of engine, not just for the ship, but for like the story to uh, go to completely absurd places. And, you know, there's just ridiculous coincidences yeah, that but happen it as a result. It's, yeah, it's funny because it also justifies the kind of narrative... Um... What's the word? Is it is it uh, serendipity? Yeah, <laughs> that other stories would like to have and want you to believe is just a coincidence. But this is yeah. like no, it's the it's the probability drive. Improbability. Yeah, it weaves it right into the story. 
like <laughs> he would find the, those these wonderful justifications like the Babelfish is sort of the answer to the question in every science fiction movie. Why are they all speaking English? Well, <laughs> yeah. says Douglas Adams, it's a fish that everyone has in their ear mm-hmm. that, that magically um, updates your thoughts telepathically so that you understand everything that everyone else is saying. Um, so yeah, they, they put out that, uh, first series in 1978. It was immediately a, a smash, uh, word of mouth spread. And, uh, the next, by the next year he was, uh, putting out a book, uh, novel, a novelization of that first series, working on the second series, working on a television ad- adaptation, uh, all simultaneously as he's also trying to, uh, be script editor on Doctor Who. Uh, it was it was a little bit bonkers, and he got a bit of a reputation for uh, falling behind schedule. Uh, there's many stories of him being locked in a room by an editor uh, to finish a novel or a script or something. And uh, yes, the second series of Hitchhiker's Guide took a little longer than expected because of things like, oh, everyone's at the studio, but there's no scripts yet. And so oh everyone's just sort of sitting on their hands waiting. Uh, yeah, so the the second series arrived in 1980, and that also uh, was sort of novelized. The the novels all uh, changed things around. With every iteration of the show, uh, as a radio show, book, game, whatever, uh, different elements kind of came to the fore. Uh, plot threads would go away or get joined up to other parts of the the story. Uh, things like uh, that that uh, story that he pitched to Doctor Who, the Cricket Men, made it into a novel, uh, the third in the uh, Hitchhiker's Guide series, um, and things like that. So there were only two series of the radio show made initially, uh, but um, years later, after Adams uh, sadly passed away in, I think it was 2001. That I think that's uh, right. Very yeah, young, 49 yeah. years old? Oh, it was ridiculous. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Dirk Maggs, who had been a friend of Douglas Adams and an uh, amazing radio producer, uh, put together uh, radio adaptations of the remaining novels because after the radio series, Adams had kept writing more novels uh, that, that followed the story of Arthur Dent and uh, all, his, all his friends. Uh, so they adapted the remaining novels with the cast, the original cast, um, those, those who were uh, still living. Uh, those came out in the early 2000s. And yeah, uh, yeah the, they, so there, there, are now, there are now radio adaptations of the whole series. It's, um, I think what made this particularly interesting to me was that it was something that started as a radio play, which... There, you know, I know it was the even in the seventies though. I can't think of many huge pieces of pop culture that were originally radio plays. Yeah, we talked about War of the Worlds. So that was a book first. Yeah, for sure. And um, uh, yeah, radio has always been radio drama has always been taken more seriously in in Britain for sure. It died out completely in the states. We had it here uh, for much longer in Canada. The CBC, our national broadcaster. Uh, kept it going uh, for a long time. That's actually where I heard Hitchhikers for the first time was that uh, they were rebroadcasting Hitchhikers. 
Um, but in the BBC, they've never stopped. They they continue to to pour out dramas and comedies. Pretty hundreds much continue. And, yeah, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. Like mm. I, I was surprised looking at the history of radio for the War of the Worlds. Um, just how much they've continued to produce over time. I mean, it wasn't a weird thing that they were producing hitchhikers in the 70s, given how many things they were also producing. It mm-hmm. is a fairly cheap way to produce media, though, to produce entertainment. Yeah. yeah. I mean, as as podcasters. Well, and a lot of people, you know, reading about a lot of people got their start in England that way, because mm-hmm. that, that was a, a thing that was hiring that always needed writers. The BBC could employ you for a radio play, and that could be how you got into live theater yeah you know oh absolutely yeah also um eli thank you so much for doing that segment it was so interesting and it it was actually really thrilling to have someone who's not part of the team do a piece of dsra that way we've never done it before (laughs) oh i'm glad anyway it was great it was so fun um but this is where i mean i think we're kind of doing it anyway i just want to what? Well, I think you're about to segue to opinions, right? Yeah. Well, I want to segue because here's the thing. Part of the reason that we trusted Eli mm. to talk <laughs> in a production segment and just to say, hey, you take this over is because of the quality of his work. <laughs> Could you talk about that work, Eli, and tell us how uh, perhaps Hitchhikers has influenced it? Oh, sure. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I grew up listening to to radio, um, radio plays, radio sketch comedy and things like that. And Hitchhiker's Guide was was just this seminal thing. There was nothing like it um, at the time, for sure, because it is so imaginative. And Adams plays so much with the the format that it's it's just it's it's really invigorating. Like he'll do things like, okay, you're on board the spaceship, powered by improbability, and a character. Uh, like Arthur just <laughs> says, my limbs are, my legs are drifting off into the sunset and you don't need any special effects. <laughs> there's, there's, there's wibbly effects on his voice and it says, Ford, you're, you're turning into a penguin. Stop it. <laughs> and just like that, he's conjured up weirder and weirder images and just, he, he piles them on. Like, um, I, and I think he uses that to, to his, his full advantage, the, um, veering away from from trying to tell a coherent story and leaning into his just mad inventiveness, which I think is, is one of his greatest strengths. Right, um, and he just he plays to them so hard. Yeah. It's like, yeah, yeah. This, this is what we're yeah. showcasing. Yeah, and that's what the 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 device of having it all narrated by the the book gives you is an excuse to tell the stories of these strange societies where I don't know like tourists are there's so many tourists on one planet that it's eroding the place and they won't let you off if you weigh more than you did when you came <laughs> um so yeah that that kind of crazy invention I guess and uh, a willingness to to take risks was was kind of inspiring so we when we came to do Alba Salix, yeah, I was like, all right, I want I want to do something kind of fantastical that that I couldn't really pull off in in any other um, any other performance medium anyway. Mm. The kind of humor, I guess, that we do in, with Alba Salix is kind of in line as you were talking about. Uh, I think it was Horatian satire. Yes, that, that kind of uh, gentler poking fun at. Um, the customs of our day uh and like we've got it it's a uh, satire a little bit on uh, the medicare system and big pharma 
But uh, in our spin-offs, we've all, we're also touching on things like gentrification and um, startup culture is coming up in our, our uh, current season of uh, our spin-off, The Axe and Crown. Um, but also, I'm, I'm working on this science fiction show, Civilized. It's completely improvised by uh, four, my partner, Sean, and three other improvisers. And I get to, to do all the, the sound production on it. And I'm definitely taking a lot of my cues from what the Radiophonic Workshop were doing. Like I'm using old analog synthesizers to do the, the sounds of the spaceship and of alien birds and insects. And uh, very much patterning the music after like um, Dudley Simpson, who was a, a Doctor Who composer at the time as well. Um, so yeah, the, there's there's deep roots uh, uh, in what we're doing from from way way back in in the BBC. Um, it was funny because I had listened to your podcast before I had listened to Hitchhikers, and then listening to Hitchhikers being like, oh yes, because you had suggested <laughs> it, so I had you guys in mind, being like, I I see it. Um, and I also think it's fun in a fantasy world to kind of use that, like Douglas Adams, like you were saying, oh, but because. Um, and I think in a fantasy world, you can kind of do that anyway, where this just happens because it's a fantasy world and we make the rules. But it also plays very well into the, I don't know, the Douglas Adams style that you guys use as well. Yeah. Yeah, that understanding of the medium and the potential there. I think that's all the more impressive for Douglas Adams, given that I don't think he had been a part of a radio show like that before, had he? Not like that. He'd written for, for various um, like light comedy shows, uh, sketch comedy and uh, like news satire but um, I don't think he had written like a, a a giant dramatic piece. Yeah, and an understanding of oh, if we say it, it's real. Yeah. In the yeah. same way that magic can work too it's in Elvis Alex, like yeah, it's a reason to use sci-fi. Yeah, yeah. Um, and for someone who might not have always loved or read a ton of the genre or written in the genre. Yeah. Um, Eli, thank you again for telling us about that. Um, you should definitely check out Elvis Alex and Civilized. Yes, and we'll have links to those when we post the episode. And really quickly, just to talk really briefly between the three of us, I wanted to know, your, I mean, obviously, Eli, you're a huge fan of Hitchhikers. Mm-hmm. But James and I, this is our first time listening to it. I haven't read the book yet. I don't think you have either. I started to in high oh. school. I actually didn't make it all Me the way too. through. Me too, yeah. yeah. Um, but it, I was very grateful that you suggested this because it forced me to get acquainted with this work. Um, but hmm. what... What did you think of it? Oh, we're starting with me? Yeah. Well, we know Eli loves it. <laughs> well, um, I did enjoy it. I found it really fun. Um, and I just, I, I do want to say, like, I uh, I think Douglas Adams and what he does here is very original in his manner of doing it. Um, I, I, I was talking so much about uh, uh, Sheckley, but um, something I just want to say is that, that there are things that Adams does well as far as pulling all the story together that Checkley would be criticized in his longer works for not being able to do. Hmm. Um, and so it's not, even if it's not as original as it's sometimes looked at uh, in its its conception and some of the ideas, his execution mm-hmm. is excellent. And, and you get a lot of credit for that, um, especially in a genre where so much of it, uh, there's been so much done, it's hard to be absolutely original. And I do buy that he wasn't intentionally taking from it, you know. Um, 
I just think it, like I said, it was an ether and it was so around that that he probably, without realizing it, did come into contact with it. Um, but I, all that said, um, I did enjoy it. It's funny because when I when I first heard it, I thought, oh yeah, Monty Python. And then I thought maybe I was being too basic in my understanding of British humor. <laughs> and I was greatly relieved to read that he found them and you know the, such a big influence yep. in his is his idea of humor. Um, what I found funny is that I find Monty Python. There's a there's a way that that clicks with me that I don't find hitchhikers like I find mm. hitchhikers funnier in talking about hitchhikers and the things that occur in it mm. than I do sometimes like like just listening to it in the moment. There were a few bits that were like laugh out loud funny to me that I really enjoyed, um, and there are others that like when I think about them later I chuckle but not like in the moment and I don't know what that I have is. a I feel the same way but I have a a, a suspicion of why. Um, so I am the same way. I really enjoyed listening to Hitchhikers and, again, so grateful that I did. And there were parts that were laugh-out-loud funny that I was blown away by. I think it was too hyped up. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Um, like, my family actually loves Hitchhikers, and, like, my dad gave me the book to read in high school, which I never finished. Um, I never quite got into it. But in the way that I think if I went back and watched Monty Python right now, I would be like, what's all the fuss about? This is Mm -hmm. okay. Where I can still go back now and think it's hilarious. But part of the reason it's hilarious is that I have been watching it since I was a kid. And I've always thought it was hilarious. And I think in the same way that like Hitchhikers was this like amazing thing that my friends loved and my family loved. And I just had to get to it. And I knew I would love it too. But I also, a lot of the jokes have been spoiled for me. Ah. Um, so it wasn't the shock of like, oh, that's really funny because I wasn't even thinking in that direction. Like I knew what the answer to the universe was. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's part of the fun is just being shocked because the things that did genuinely shock me, I really enjoyed. Mm. What were some of those just, uh, out of curiosity? Um, I think, uh, <laughs> now we're going to spoil it for the listener. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, go for it. Go for it. It's, it's been around. It's been around the dolphins. And when they say goodbye, I thought was really funny. Um, so long and thanks for all the fish. <laughs> yeah, it's really good. <laughs> and I didn't yeah. know about that. Um, and I loved the improbability drive. I didn't, I hadn't heard about that. My absolute favorite that I still think about, and we listened to it weeks ago, um, is the spaceship full of middlemen? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> that we're told, hey, we all got to leave the planet. You guys go first. <laughs> Yeah. And like the man who's been in the tub, this alien that's been in the tub for three years because he just enjoys taking a bath, just this useless person. But he's nice. He's a good host. He's friendly. He's hospitable. Like that whole deal and the other, you know, I won't give everything away for the jokes of like the people on the staff with him there. Um, but I found that delightful. Uh and it made me think of some of his other influences like Woodhouse, where it's like, these are silly, ridiculous people and they're dumb, but it's so witty and well-written that you like them anyway, mm-hmm. you know, and it isn't so mean, um, which I also think is different than Monty Python too, because Monty Python has a mean bite to it at times. <laughs> a mile wide. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Eli, what were your some of favorite? Uh, I guess you really enjoyed it when you first listened to it. I think you yeah. mentioned that earlier. I Yeah, I barely remember my, my first <laughs> uh, exposure <laughs> to it. Um, but... Th- th- just listening back to it recently, uh, there, I was struck by certain things about the production. Like there's, there's just perfect comic timing on some of the sound design. Um, I, I, I won't spoil any moments, but uh, 
but yeah, the, the production team were, were really on. I remember yeah. thinking the sound design is excellent. Yeah. It's um, something that I thought about this and War of the Worlds, but we can get into that in a minute. Yeah. Go ahead. And, you know, Adams would f- feed them crazy cues. Like, where, where I had one written down here uh, where in the script he, he calls for uh, FX, a low throbbing hum which builds quickly in intensity and pitch wind and thunder, rending, grinding crashes, all the niggling little fr- frustrations that the BB sound effects, BBC sound effects engineers have ever had can all come out in a final devastating explosion which then dies away into silence. That is the literal thing written there as a prompt? And as, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the, he wrote that in a script. I think that is yep. the... the, the uh, All your niggling a, a little frustrations. In, <laughs> yeah. The right sound designer would love that. Yeah. The wrong sound designer would just be done. Absolutely. <laughs> um, and then um, I we also, I don't know if you listened to War of the Worlds, but we did compare the two. And we always mm-hmm. talk a little bit about how our two choices compared. Um, I think they actually do pretty well as far as like influential radio dramas and the use of sound and yeah. sound effects. And each, I think, takes a, a different spin on like a framing device. Well, like with uh, mm-hmm. Orson Welles uh, has that clever idea of let's make this like audio verite and pretend that it's an actual news broadcaster breaking in and uh, lends it this kind of urgency that it wouldn't have had. Yeah. Uh, where um, Adams, as I say, is, is using this device of the book to uh, paint these big sweeping pictures that you wouldn't be able to if it was just a bunch of people talking back and forth. There'd, there'd be no way to tell the story of, of yeah, your uh, <laughs> aliens. Well, I guess I guess the aliens uh, who are on the B arc, uh, all, all the middle <laughs> managers and so on, that, that's told in a combination of dialogue and uh, narration. But the, the narration is such a, a pivotal element. It's, it's a character in the story. It, it is it, ostensibly it's the voice of the book within the 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 story of Hitchhiker's Guide, but it's also this meta narrative that that is telling the telling the story of the story. Yeah, because it's a book about the book, right? It's yeah, a book about of, the Hitchhiker's Guide. Yeah, which gives it so much permission for what it thinks is important. Yes, in this story about the whole galaxy right it's like i guess that you can jump where you want and the actor who does it does it with such confidence oh yeah yeah. it was really good it was written for uh that's um peter jones and and he had written it for uh, he was thinking i'd love to have a narrator that sounds kind of like peter jones and and they auditioned like two or three other people before thinking why don't we ask peter jones (laughs) to be (laughs) the book yeah that's great um, do you have any opinions on James on how they compare? Um, I think it's there. It's a really nice pairing as far as if you would like to listen to extraordinarily influential radio mm. forty years apart as check-ins with the genre. Where um, War of the Worlds is so well done and so uh, startling to the people that listen to it for good and bad reasons, right? Or some of them actually may have been frightened by it, uh, that it launched Orson Welles' Hollywood career. Like you can listen to War of the Worlds, be impressed with it and think, oh yeah, that's why they gave that man money for Citizen Kane. Hmm. And uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy 
is an industry in and of itself. And it is so fun for me to think about some uh, a BBC radio play in the late 1970s doing something that continues to be influential today and that is uh, almost like a self-identifying badge in nerd yeah. culture to be mm -hmm. a fan of it. Um, and to think that radio could do that, uh, th those those two kinds of uh, of things across such a wide amount of time and that are and, and productions that, as we've talked about, are so distinctly radio. Yeah. The way that they work, the world, the world's fooling you the way it does is because it is actually easier with radio to fake a fa a real broadcast and all these events than it would be with something like television. Right. And the sci-fi effects are easier in Hitchhiker's or Guide to the like Galaxy. Or something like writing. It actually works better than, I mean, I think the world, the word, War of the Worlds book is excellent. Um, I would argue better than the, the radio play. But I do think that um, to be able to achieve what Orson Welles was going trying to achieve with that and that fear factor, you couldn't quite do that. You couldn't do that in a book. It could only be done through the radio, maybe mm. TV, but that'd right. be pushing it. Um, one more point that I meant to make earlier, and especially when I was researching satire and then thinking about this, to me, like that, and these are stereotypes. I'm going to admit it. Satire to me is the most British sense of humor. And mm. that idea that, like, we can't talk openly about the problem, mm. so we're just going to make fun of it. And then listening to Hitchhikers and thinking, this is the most British thing I've listened to in a long time. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. It's funny, yeah, because, but it also can be so cutting. It's polite it's and cut yet cutting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which to me is very British. And I mean, my, I'm very influenced in my ideas of British uh, humor from Monty Python and Jeeves and Worcester and, um, oh my gosh, Mr. Bean and, um, my gosh, what's the other Rowan Atkinson? Blackadder. Um, but anyway, mm, that yeah. idea that, like, it's always the the um, the real topic is always just kind of being skirted. But And that requires a certain amount of intelligence. Oh, Even for when sure. writing about silly characters, I think that I think Douglas Adams talked about that being something that attracted him to Monty Python's humor, that he found that comedy could actually be a way of intelligent people expressing themselves. As silly as all this is, like for the, it to work the way it does and all the things we've talked about, it requires a great degree of intelligence. Yeah. Well, Eli, thank you so much for coming on. It was such a pleasure having you. Yes. Oh, um, same here. I'm. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Thank you all so much for listening. Once again, I'm James Foey. And I'm Claire White. And this is... Eli McElveen from Fable and Folly Productions. And this is Dragons, Sexy Robots, and Adventures, a Nerd Manual. Feel free to contact us on our website at dsrapodcast.com. We would love it if you could rate and review us on iTunes. You can find the show on social medias at DSRA Podcast, and I can be found on Twitter at James Foey Jr. That's F-O-U-H-E-Y-J-R. And I can be found at Along With Claire, that's C-L-A-I-R-E. And Eli, where can we find you? Uh, I'm Forgery League on Twitter and uh, Instagram, and uh, all our shows live at fableandfolly.productions. Excellent. You, oh, and we will, of course, link to those in our description as well. And you can learn more about The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy on our Facebook page. Uh, I'm not really producing this episode, but we'll call me producer James Foey. Claire is producing this episode. <laughs> uh, our logo is done by Patty Highland, and our theme was composed by Pete Rowan. Once again, this is Dragons, Sexy Robots, and Adventures, a nerd manual. Thanks for listening, and we will see you in two weeks. Bye.